This is the Ritz and Cures podcast. Time to talk Ritz and Cures again on this Tuesday night and once again joined by psychiatrist and director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum's Cancer Centre in Associate Professor Steve Ellen. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you, Lindy. Nice to see you. And we're also joined by Melbourne lawyer, Katie Miller, our own Katie Miller. Hi, Katie. Hi, Lindy. Good to see you. We won't ask if you can sing because that's just cruel, although I'm sure that you can. Not at all. Not at all? Not at all. I am having piano lessons at the moment, but that's the limit of my musical ability. Okay, that's all right. Piano lessons is great. Sort of, you know, in a later, later part of one's life, normally you think you're 13 or something. What prompted that? I always wanted to learn when I was a kid and just for whatever reason, it never came up. So when I was an adult, I just decided that I wanted to learn. And it's actually really interesting learning as an adult because you're actually learning the same music that the kids are learning, (laughs) uh, that the young people are learning. Um, But you actually sort of progress through it a lot better because as an adult, you've already learnt how to learn. And so you can actually pick things up a lot more quickly. So are you enjoying the experience or are you finding it frustrating? Oh, I love it. I love it. And for me, I think it's become a really good outlet Uh, for me in terms of, you know, mental health and well-being and all that sort of stuff. Um, And it's also probably a more productive use of my time than video games and yet gives me the same sort of level of stimulation. There's sometimes when I'm trying to get a piece right and I feel like this is exactly like I used to do with video games, trying to, you know, clock that level. Yeah. It's funny, you know, I've been studying a lot of this in in the yoga teaching course that I've been doing over the past couple of years because the whole point of yoga is to be able to get you to focus on one point or one thing, one object, and it to have your absolute entire attention no matter what's going on outside you, sort of the ultimate idea of meditation. And the whole point of doing all the postures and everything and do the breathing is to take you into that space. But what's interesting is that there are other things in life that can take you to that point mm. as well. And people are talking about how their experience of something like mountaineering, you know, where you kind of cling into the side of a cliff face and all you're thinking about is, can I get that piton into that little tiny crack and am I latching onto that correctly and where's my foot and how all that. And you playing the piano, particularly in a learning environment where you're so fully focused into that, is a form of meditation. Do you feel that when you're playing, when you're learning? Definitely. When it's going well and when you're sort of in the flow, um, it can definitely feel like that. Um, Of course, you also then get the days where nothing's going right. You just have to walk away. Stephen? I'm giving it the psychiatric ticket of approval. (laughs) No, I'm serious. When we talk about psychological first aid and mental health, you know, at the things that roll off our tongues, we tell everyone the same five things. Exercise, nutrition, which includes reducing alcohol and caffeine. Um, Exercise, nutrition, I'm running out of things. Stress levels, look at your problems and decrease your stress. Look at your relationships. And then the last one is sleep. They're our big five. But the other, I reckon one of the secret hidden ones is learning. You know, people who are learn. if you put yourself in a learning position every year in some way, shape or form, whether it's a musical instrument or you go along and learn to type or you go along and learn how to fix, your, you know, service your car, I don't think it matters. But I think learning is one of the secret keys. But in particular with musical instruments, of course, it brings in the, the joy of music and the joy because you listen to music, it gives you a greater appreciation. Um, I, I think it's a no-brainer. I've learnt lots too. I've done harmonica. I, I did bass guitar with my son. So my son was learning elect, was learning normal guitar, six strings, and so I went along at the same time and did bass with him. So that way it ticked off learning, music, 
and and, F- and an FSA, Father Son Activity. <laughs> and, um, so I think they're gold. I'm I'm all for it, Katie. Good on you. Oh, that's lovely. And I don't know if it leads beautifully into our conversation about personalities tonight, but let's pretend that it has, because that it is our focus and the whole idea of whether or not you're born with a certain set of personality traits, mm. and that's kind of it. And in fact, on Facebook, we're asking you tonight if you think your personality has changed over time. And I think I said, you know, I want you to really think about that. Don't just you know dash something off. Or, oh, I'm you know, I'm you know I'm I'm more patient now than I was. It's I, I want to think. I want you to think about your absolute core personality traits, the things that underpin so much of what you do with the rest of your life. Has it changed over time? And Stephen, does it does it change? Is you know what's the science say? Well, the um, the thing that um, made us talk about this was an article on ABC Online reporting on a Scottish study, and this Scottish study got a lot of media headlines because it compared kids who were 14 years old back in whenever that was, do the maths, you know, 1947 or something, um, to a couple of years ago when they were on average about 77 years old. And because uh, tra- the traditional psychology has been a leopard doesn't change its spots. I wrote stripes earlier when I was making notes on this and I realised leopards um, don't. Is it stripes or spots? I'm confused again. Leopards have spots. They have spots. Thank yeah. you. Tigers um, have stripes. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm not very good, good thing on, we're here, Katie. Yeah, I'm quite good on psychiatry, but I'm not very good on animals. <laughs> um, and the traditional, the traditional belief is that we don't change. Now, this study came out saying that there was actually very little correlation between a 14-year-old and a 77-year-old. Very little whatsoever. In fact, it was almost random. Um, as it turned out, the study wasn't. The study had a whole lot of limitations. Of course, the personality tests they were doing back in 1947 weren't that good, and they were marked by teachers. But the, so the traditional belief is that your personality is pretty stable by the time you're a young adult. So you know you develop up, up until about 18, and then it's largely stable. It varies a little bit, but not a heap. So that that's been the traditional um, idea, anyway. But not now. I don't think this study is going to change it, to be honest, but I think it's really interesting because people have the perception that they change. People believe that they become wiser, more insightful, more considered, more thoughtful. Um, they take more time, whereas the evidence doesn't back it up that much. We're pretty, we're pretty much the same creatures, more, more or less. Now, there is a particular personality study, or not study, test, I guess, for want of a better description, or quiz that you can do that we've all done. Did you do yours, Katie? Because Stephen did. gave it to us as homework. I love giving out yeah. homework. <laughs> to make sure that we did the test to see what that experience was like for us and what where we came down. Because and what is it? It's the 16 personality type test? Well, I just actually, to be honest, I picked that one randomly. I just put in Google personality test and, and I was in a hurry. Right. And uh, it was the first one that came up, but I looked at it and, and I did it took 10 minutes. Yes. And uh, I thought, oh, that's all right. It was largely based on the Myers-Briggs that I think a lot of listeners will have heard of. The Myers-Briggs um, type inventory, I think it's called, is a proper name, is, um, is is relatively famous. It's used in business a lot to uh, to rate people on particular scales. And so that was the one that, that I picked. It was Myers-Briggs, which has the four scales plus one extra scale of assertiveness. And you get a percentage score for each one. And? What did you come down as? Well, I came down as what they called a protagonist. So my scores, I was actually relatively middle for most except the obvious one. So on intuitiveness versus, so do I make decisions based on um, uh, sensing or intuition? I came down as more, right in the middle actually, intuitive 52%. Um, Thinking versus feeling, I was a little bit on the feeling side, 61%. 
judging versus perception. So do I, you know, how do I make decisions around those issues? It was, I was mainly judging and assertive. I was 56. The one I was really high on was extroversion. <laughs> I was off the scale. Well, yeah. I wasn't quite well, off the I'm scale. I'm shocked. Are we shocked? Okay. Absolutely shocked. Shocked at that. I didn't yes. actually, how I, did you go? I, I was, I was the same. I was a protagonist. See, it said that we're only 2% of the population, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Which is unusual. But I, I didn't actually write down what the various percentages were. Oh, but didn't I, you? I came down as the, as a protagonist. What did you come down as, Katie? So in terms of the Maya Briggs letters, I was ENTJ. I'll look you up while you're talking. ENTJ. Yeah, so I was ENTJ. So that means uh, extroverted. uh, I got intuitive thinking and judging. And that totally makes sense because I've actually done Maya Briggs tests in the past. Um, And it's interesting what you say, Steve, about you don't think that personality changes. Um, I first did Maya Briggs when I was probably in my early 20s when I was running kids camps. Uh, and at that stage, I was INTJ and I was very introverted. But then once I started working, ah. I did it again as part of one of these, you know, young leaders courses. Yes. Uh, and I'd become ENTJ. And it's interesting that, you know, just on this one that we've done tonight. So wait a second, you kept your NTJ, you just changed from introverted to extroverted. That's right. And I'm only just over the extroverted side. So I'm certainly certainly not in your league, Steve. Who is? Who (laughs) is? But is is that... Don't even try. Is is that how unusual... Not unusual, but is that... Is that, I was going to say possible, of course it's possible, Katie's just done it, but that's saying to me that you can change well, that, fundamental aspects yeah. of your personality. Well, this is, where, this is where I'm exaggerating a little when I say you don't change. So the correlation between people, um, it depends on the personality characteristics. Some are more stable than others, but most... All characteristics are stable between a correlation of about 0.2 and a 0.8. 1% is 100% stay the same and zero is none and negative is you go the other direction. So they're all positive and some are mild. You know, the, the extroversion, introversion doesn't surprise me because you've done a job that's required you to be extroverted and stand up in public and speak. You haven't gone haywire. You know, you've only gone 50, just <laughs> over 50%. But, you know, it, it's, so, it, so you do change a little bit. That's the thing. But also, I think the other problem that we have with personality is how much, how insightful are we? When we answer these scale, when yeah. we answer these tests, Questions. do we write what we want to be yeah. or what we are? It's a really good point. Yeah, and I think, I sometimes think it would be better to get, you know, 15 of your best friends to rate your personality than to ask yourself. I think others know us better than we know ourselves yeah. in some respects. Yeah, maybe although, we should have done that with each other. Although, is that about um, what our personality is or is that just, I mean, this is, this is the whole thing of what is personality? Is personality defined by who I believe I am yeah. or is personality yeah. actually about how others perceive Yes. Me? Or is it innate? You know, that these are no matter what you, how you behave, there's something that's deeply underpinning that or is it about yeah, all of the, the various um, veils that you put on top of yourself for, for others to perceive you through and also for you to perceive the world through. It's some great text. Deb from Caulfield says, not the, not my personality that's changed, but certainly my behaviour and understanding of myself. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I buy that completely. Yeah. And yep. one that says, I spent my adolescent years trying to be more like my mother and sisters. Finally, I got it. I'm not like them. I'm now in my late 50s and I haven't changed, so I'm really happy with that. That's some fee. Well, interestingly, you know, the whole one of the biggest questions along with this personality change is is it nature versus nurture? How much are you born with? 
how much do you um, uh, get from life experience in particular in your child in up to 18? And the general rule of thumb, it depends on the characteristic, but people, by and large, this is going to sound a bit crappy, but it's 50-50. You know, it's a lot you're born with. And there's some very famous studies of twins, so identical twins, who for adoption reasons were reared in different countries or by different families in the same country. And some of the stories are phenomenal. I mean, there's one that's always stuck in my mind of, you know, this these two twins that were reared apart, one in America, one in the USA, they'd never met, totally different families, randomly picked. Both grew up to be accountants who had an interest in model train sets. One had his whole model train set set around um, historical trains in America and one had it set around <laughs> historical trains in Germany. I mean, that sort of stuff's freaky, but then life experiences do change you too. <laughs> That's great. It's a text that I love this. You can use this, Stephen, by the way. So a leopard doesn't change its spots, but it just gets better at finding spotty environments in which to blend. Well, that I, I love that yeah, because good, that is it? very true. We find our tribe. Yeah. As we grow older, we find our tribe and we're more comfortable around the people that we choose to be with. It's like when, you know, at school and uni, you often think, oh, my goodness, these people I'm with are driving me nuts. But then as you grow older, you choose your tribe, the people who suit you. But I think we also then in turn influence our tribe. So the other half of the story is that I became an ENTJ, but my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, he started out as an ENTJ and he's now an INTJ. No. So we actually swapped. Because, maybe because you were moving in one direction and he was responding to that given that he was your partner, the person that you were involving yourself with. Oh, I don't Possibly. Know. I, He's do I sound like I know what I'm talking about? I think we're, I think we're I all don't. thinking the same things, but it's hard to describe because I think you can have a personality not just within an individual but within a relationship. Your relationship yes, has a character. The role. And a society, and that's what we call culture, Has a, a culture is the societal equivalent of a personality. How this group of people who isolated themselves on this particular land at this particular time grew to have different characteristics and so it occurs at lots of different levels and you hear that um, a lot uh, in medicine where people say someone's had a psychological problem for a long time that's limited in some way and then they get better it totally changes the relationship and often the partner then has consequences that were unintended from one person getting treated has unintended consequences on the other it's really you know we work in weird and wonderful ways do you know what I I was thinking about about this today as well I was thinking about how a a, a counsellor that I was seeing years ago said to me something along the lines of uh, Lindy I I think you do a lovely job on the radio and it's all that terrific but it's all terrific but your basic personality probably is not conducive to you being in such a high profile uh, public position mm. that and uh, you know, I can remember when she said that to me and uh, you know I, I went to argue it and but because I was you know paying her a lot of money to speak the truth to me and vice versa um, I, I went I think that's actually true I mm. think that d- deep down my actual personality is quite introverted but because of the work that I've been doing for 27 years it's I'm not I, I don't think I think if we looked at my numbers from my particular protagonist thing to your Steve you being 80-something percent, I think I'd be like, Katie, like 52. I'd just be just over the top. I think that's of true, the 50%. though. 50%. Because I think different characteristics can drive us. And yeah. also certain luck and just 
But also you know, what you're good at. Yeah. Like you don't your personality. Like I'm, I'm quite good at being in the radio. I like. I'm good at bringing, com- having conversations with people, at bringing people together. It's. I, I do that naturally. I did that when I was a kid at family gatherings mm. and all that kind of biz. So I just transferred it to my job. But at the same time, there are other aspects of this job that require me to have certain personality traits that I don't have naturally that I've had to cultivate. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Well, I think, you know, because you know, I've always been super extroverted, but believe it or not, I'm also a little bit socially phobic. Um, and so, you know, I always want to go out in the crowd and be the centre of attention. And then my anxiety levels are, you know, through the roof half the time because I don't actually like it when I'm, you know, see, I don't think all of these things naturally, I don't think we understand them that clearly. No. And I think there's a lot of randomness and luck as to what, you know, aspects of our personality get expressed in our life. It's, you know, the luck of who we meet, the luck of whether bad things or good things happen to us, whether surrounded by supportive people, good families, whether our job works out. I don't think it's that easy to understand. And the other, you know, the other caveat I like to say is that we don't understand this. You know, I think, you know, I, I, when, I tr- when I try and explain this, people say, how can you not understand this? How can you say you're confused by personality? The reality is, you know, we, we're really good at studying abnormal stuff like depression, schizophrenia, dementia and stuff like that. We're not good at understanding who we are. We're not good at the normal stuff. We're not, the text before, you know, made me smile because we're not bad on behavior because you can measure it. But measuring emotions and feelings and what's going on in people's heads Oh, the human mind's a mystery to me. So, and this is what always... <laughs> it's you know, terrible. I mean, this is what you want to hear from the person in yeah. your position. <laughs> as well. Exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, Linda, you said that, you know, these are things that we're starting to see, uh, you know, or that we might have heard about in business. And, I mean, that's right. People are increasingly, you know, using sort of psychometric testing or yep. some sort of personality testing when they're recruiting. Um, and I find that a very interesting space because, um, you know, in my area of law is, is very much around decision-making. And what I've tended to observe in my practice practice is that just because you have more information available to you doesn't necessarily mean that we become better decision makers. And I guess I'm just interested in, you know, how much of this stuff starts to play into some of our biases and how much yes. does this become a label that we put on people? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think you raised two really good points there. The, the first point you make that your intuition sometimes better than your judgment with lots of information, that's been shown in lots of studies now. Um, humans, when they have lots of information, sometimes just tangle themselves up and they don't make really good decisions. So when you measure people's gut decisions, even about complex issues, say like finances that might involve 10 or 20 variables that will help you with your decision, a lot of people's ability to make a gut decision which is about pattern recognition. It's about your ability, how you play chess. It's the same. You look at something, you see a pattern. You can't necessarily think through the 80 moves of what's going to happen here, there, 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 there. But your gut feeling about pattern recognition is better. But the other thing is I think there's a lot of astrology in personality testing. So the personality testing that we have that's been sold in particular to the business community, you know, there's I think you've got I think it's useful to a degree, but it's got to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. Because if you read a lot of the descriptions, they're always positive. They read a bit like astrology, like, you know, you're ENTJ, you're frank, decisive, you assume leadership readily, you quickly see illogical and inefficient procedures and policies. You know, it sounds like a horoscope. Let's face it. There's nothing in there that says you can be annoying at times. <laughs> you know, there's no- I'm not suggesting you can, Katie, but I'm just, you know, I'm raising these issues. We might need to ask the INTJ in my life for that. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's bring him now. <clears throat> a few little quick texts before we wrap this part of Ritz and Cures. What if personality is a projection of yourself to the society around you and then society reflects its perception of you back? Well, he's just reminding me of Shrek. We're like onions. There's 
layers and layers and layers. 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 It all comes back to Shrek. It does. Uh, Diane says, have you heard of The Brain That Changed Itself, written by Deutsch? Yeah, that's a a very famous book. That's um, talking about a slightly different concept. Oh, no, it's actually related. It's the concept of neuroplasticity. So in the old days, the thought was your brain was set. It was like it was hardwired. Nothing changed it. That turns out to be completely wrong. And even thinking changes your brains at a very microscopic level, obviously. And so the brain does change and adapt. And so the modern concepts of neuroplasticity in the brain that changes itself would support personality changing throughout life. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. On Facebook, we've asked the question, you know, do you think that your personality has changed over the years? Lachlan says, of course my personality has changed or evolved. They evolve over a lifetime. The old saying that a leopard never changes its spots is a bit of a myth, in my opinion. And Kerry says, true, I have changed with age in I'm completely different than I was at 20. Then I was different from that at 25, 30, and now almost 37, different again. I have loved getting older because of how much I have changed. And Chris says, I've changed since turning 70 and retired. Much happier, fitter, go to the gym daily, doing what I want to do, not what I have to do, and life is so much better. Uh, and this from Ewan in Patton Hill. Lindy, I left a very big corporate executive position some years ago now, 500 plus employees. My at work personality, totally different to me by necessity eventually I just left uh, and another is my personality that which I see in himself or that which you see in me stop it people stop it uh, and Shane just going yeah Lindy I'm an introverted extrovert as well thank you Shane in a moment we're going to meet the Law Institute Victoria President her name is Belinda Wilson and we'll talk a bit about her career and indeed the role of lawyers in 2017 <laughs> This is Ritz and Cures. This is Tuesday night with me, Katie Miller, Melbourne lawyer, and with me, psychiatrist, associate professor Steve Ellen. And we've been joined tonight by a special guest who is the current Law Institute Victoria president. Her name is Belinda Wilson. She's worked in large city-based firms. She's worked in small local firms in places like Gippsland, a general counsel and a CEO of Victoria's first hand-dived scallop harvesting enterprise, which is pretty unusual, Uh, a board member and a lecturer in tertiary education institutions and now provides advisory services to primary producers, restaurants and food businesses. I told you she was an unusual person to be at the head of the Law Institute of Victoria. As the president, she's helping lawyers to recognise the value of their knowledge and skills as proactive advisors to whom clients turn for expertise and guidance in life and business. And if that's not a tricked up explanation of what lawyers do, I don't think I've ever heard one before. Belinda, welcome to the program. Thank you and good evening. What's a hand-dived scallop harvest? Well, we have amazing wild product right on our doorstep here in Melbourne. We've got um, Port Phillip Bay scallops and they're, they're wild. So, so, they're people, just, so people dive down. Yeah, yeah. Every scallop that's on a restaurant plate um, in Melbourne has been uh, hand-picked. Isn't it like incredibly political and all sorts of licenses and battles over how many you can take and stuff like that? Or? Yeah, it's been, yeah, it's been a political minefield for the last few years. Um, there's only one license currently on, on offer. Ah. And for histo- one company to for, do it. For one company. And historically, Port Phillip Bay scallops have been world-renowned, but it was a dredged product. So it was not the, the right thing from the environment's point of view. Okay, go back again. So what do you mean by – so it was, it was 
kind of dug up with a lot of other stuff as yeah, well. So it dragged along. Dra- right. Dragged along the, the bottom of the bay. Right. Um, you had about 97 vessels in, in Port Phillip Bay. This is back 60s right through to the late 90s. Right. And the state government a few years ago has decided, well, we've got this amazing resource here um, right on our doorstep. How do we best use it? And it was decided, well, let's make it this incredible fishery that is is going to be once again world-renowned based on sustainable practices, being responsible um, and having a uniqueness about it. But it did mean that a lot of people lost their jobs, yeah? Back in the 90s, yeah, a, a huge amount so uh, do, lost their livelihoods. Do people bid on a yearly basis in order to get that one licence or is it just continually handed out to one company? Yeah, it, it went to public auction quite a few years ago now and um, there was the ability to to bid and um, Port Phillip Bay Scallops was that, that lucky winning bidder. So they have it? In perpetuity in, now. In perpetuity, right. yeah. But it's an expensive process. There's a lot of uh, scientific research that's ongoing. Um, it's about making sure that that bay is um, pristine, preserved. So they're by the hand picked. And, correct. So you have divers whose job yeah. is to go. How many divers do it at oh, one look, time? It, it depends on the season and the time, time of season. Um, at the height, you probably have between 20 to, to 40 and uh, I've been out on the bay, and it's such a unique experience. It's so much fun. Um, you really get to understand the weather and how temperamental it can be. And Wait a sec, have you dived? Have you no, done the diving? No, not not. That'd um, be fun. It's on the wish list, but um, this year law is um, taking a front seat. I was going to say. So what? What does a lawyer do in that environment? What What are your main jobs? Yeah. Uh, for me, it was running the company, but also looking at it from a legal perspective. So f- the fishing industry is heavily regulated. There's a lot of laws around what you can fish for, what you can't fish for, the size of fish. Um, so as a lawyer, it's making sure that all your divers, um, everyone in the company understands what those um, rules are. And if they, they do sort of step over some grey areas, um, the lawyer in you at times does have to defend or explain or um, make sure that you've got training programs in place. Um, For me, it was also a lot about engaging with government, um, playing an educative role and um, unfortunately wearing the the legal hat to enforce a few decisions uh, from time to time. And then it's the negotiation point of view too. So um, arranging uh, supply um, with customers and, um, so the whole thing. You yeah, know, the, the obvious whole... thing, though, is so you've changed from managing scallops to lawyers. Is there a big difference? Mm, <laughs> can I say no comment? <laughs> <laughs> Katie's sitting right there. Okay. Katie doesn't look happy. <laughs> she doesn't. I don't know. I would like to say that, you know, every lawyer is also hand-picked, just like the scallops. <laughs> well done. Well oh, done, Katie. just <laughs> pathetic. Pathetic. So when, when you became the president, is it, is it start in January? It is, does. It does start yeah. in January. First of January. So what was the first thing over the ensuing couple of weeks that you went, man, I didn't think the job entailed that? For me, it was quite disappointing. We had Burke Street incident. Yep. Um, that was within the first few weeks of, of me um, in the office. And it was a huge impact um, for for Melbourne itself, um, for a lot of lawyers that were in that district, and the Law Institute itself was um, right right there in the middle of the action. So for me, it was wow. Um, 
you know, how do we how do we come out and and address this and look at the current laws and um, assist in in bringing our knowledge to the table and our expertise and our volunteers to um, to look at this um, problem as a holistic problem, um, not just a, a criminal problem it's a technology problem it's um you know mental health communication yeah so many different facets and so when you're you're talking about the problems that that exist there you're not just sort of saying you know the problem of well how does a person get a car and end up being able to do something like that in the middle of melbourne cbd but i mean you're also talking about for example the bail justice review that's happening at the moment Correct, and we've actually put together um, a task force ourselves to um, to get our experts in the law to advise the government and this um, Daniel Andrews task force um, review, so that we can actually um, contribute our our knowledge to that. Because it's so, so much of those kinds of investigations are, are fraught because there's there's community expectation, there's emotion, there's grief, there's a, a very divergent um, beliefs on the right way to go about this, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, what there should be more of, what the, you know, the, the word should gets used a lot. You, you keep talking about getting experts in the field and the experts in the area who know about what is the best practice in something yeah. like like bail how do you but how do you walk that line when there's an expectation at the community level for something to be done yeah it's uh, from my point of view i think it's quite easy because the the expert lawyers that we've got they are doing this on a day-to-day basis this is their lives they are in court every day um the the media um, captures certain segments and that the public may think they know a lot about bail laws, how it operates, but, but the experts that are available to uh, give that view and that measured view are the ones that are seeing it from so many different levels um, on a daily basis. It's sort of a, you know, it's, it, in a sense this has been the challenge of the last few years, this whole idea of how do you introduce no, evidence, evidence. Let's not even call it experts because the moment you call it experts, I think you put people off in a sense, mm-hmm. even though it is expert advice. But how do you introduce evidence to policy? And your area in particular, law, especially things around crime and policing and whatnot, um, there's a lot more politics and public perception than there is evidence. Um, things like mandatory sentencing is a classic example. You ask people in law and they say it's counterproductive. You ask the public and they say, we need justice. And that's, you know, those things come to, come together. And I, and I guess I'm referring to the whole era of Trump and personality politics rather than evidence. Um, you know, so whilst on the one hand it's easy, how do you get the public to, um, to take notice? Very good question. And I think that's where the Law Institute does play that public education role. Um, and it's, it's about educating why we've got particular laws and why some laws actually do need changing as well. I want to talk more about the broad idea of you of, of what the president of the Law Institute actually does and what the Law Institute of Victoria actually does in in itself. What tips can you get? People listening to this program right now probably don't have much to do with lawyers. I'm assuming that, I mean, if you go about life in a pretty general way, the chances are maybe you see a conveyancing lawyer, you know, every now and then perhaps you see somebody if you are having relationship issues. Um, the hope is that you don't see lawyers. Well, I, I would say I, I do hope that everybody is seeing a lawyer about their will. I know it's not a sexy topic, but wills are important. Yeah, it's, I, I'm with you there. But that's kind of like 
if you if you do it once, you know, unless your circumstances significantly change, you're not seeing them every second week, are you? It's every second of, year, it's sort of no. like yeah, no. Every second year, your your life changes every two years. <laughs> I've, only, I've done mine once about ten uh, years ago. Me no, no, too. No. So no. me too. I'm terrible. Okay, I'll get. We'll, I'll we'll get. book you an appointment after this. <laughs> I, I think it's really important to have a great relationship with your lawyer because. Lawyers shouldn't be there when the world turns upside down and you're in chaos. A lawyer should be there right at that start. So you should have that conversation early on. I'm starting a business. I'm thinking about gifting some money to my children. I'm thinking about buying a property. Have that chat as you do with currently with your accountant. Have it with your lawyer as well. But aren't they going to bill me, you know, for this first six minutes and then every three minutes afterwards? Oh, look, I, I hear this a lot even from my partner who um, I've, reminds me I've got to send him a bill. Um, but no, no, lawyers, um, we've moved away from the, the billing in six-minute units, um, you know, where we... We are. We have to be open about those discussions, and um, you'll find that a lawyer is more than happy to be on that phone or face to face, giving you a bit of advice. Um, if it means you know, for, for next to nothing, if not a, a free half an hour, um, so that it means that you're building that relationship and you're starting um, off on the right foot, rather than seeing them in times of in trouble. a crisis. Yeah. I mean, most people are going to have a range of legal needs in their lifetime. I mean, is it realistic these days to think that the one lawyer is going to fill all of my legal needs for my whole lifetime? Well, I'm a regional lawyer at heart, so yes. Um, but, <laughs> because you have to be. Well, you have to be. You've got to be that jack of all trades. Um, at times you do have to also realise your limitations and be able to, to refer on. So it's really important to have all those networks as a solicitor. Um, so it's like so having think, a GP and a specialist when you need it. Correct, yeah. And interestingly, you know, on the billing, you guys have made way more advances than we have. You know, the times I have had to use a lawyer, they give you an upfront bit of paper now telling you, whereas if you want to go to a specialist tomorrow, there was an article, this was on the news just in the last couple of days, you know, you don't have a clue how much they're going to charge you and you don't have a clue what their bill's based on. That It's, it's random. You know, you guys have done a lot better. Yeah, and I think it's important to have that upfront conversation too about, look, what are my costs going to be? What things can I do myself as a client? Um, what things do you do as a solicitor? What should people do if they do see somebody? Not, not, I'm not saying this would happen with either of the two of you, but they're not happy with those services. We've talked a little bit about what happens in the medical field, and what's the name of that organisation that looks into that again? That you know, not malpractice, but APRA. APRA, Yeah, Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Authority. Authority. Thank you. See, it just rolls off the (laughs) tongue to the point where I can't even remember what it is, but at least it exists. Um, What's the similar thing in the legal world? Yeah, well, our equivalent is a legal services board, but but that's the last approach. So the first one is to actually pick up that phone or make an appointment with the solicitor that you're not entirely happy with and have that conversation. Um, Open it up to say, why you're not happy or what what's bugging you because often it's a, a communication problem and it's a simple fix. How much is there an emphasis now on, because we've talked about this in the medical world as well, the whole idea of, of communication being almost the most crucial skill that you need to have when you when you work in medicine. Is that changing in the world of the law as well? Oh, I, I certainly think that it is. So I t- tend to tell people who are coming into law or who are perhaps in their early stages of their career um, that the law is really just the tools 
you know, that's, that's just the starting point. It's what you do with it that counts. So you can be the smartest person in the room. You can know a statute backwards. But if you can't communicate that to a client in a way they understand, then you are useless to me. Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> no, put, put too fine a point on it. That's, that is so interesting. True. It is because it's the same in medicine. You can be the smartest guy, know the most fantastic treatment, but if you can't explain it to the patient and make them believe you, they won't do it. And, you know, we have massive rates of non-compliance as a consequence. People just don't take, you know, they say they nod their head and they say thank you. They take the advice and they walk out and do something totally different because it hasn't been communicated. So interesting. I must say, though, that is also something that I think that lawyers are starting to get a bit better at, and that is that idea of um, where on the spectrum do we sit between sort of trusted advisor, facilitator, enforcer. Um, and I think that, you know, if we, we go back sort of 30, 40 years, there was a much more paternalistic model where, you know, we, we really sort of said, well, look, this is, this is what you need to do. And we didn't really provide a lot of scope for discussion about it. Uh, I think now we recognise that, uh, you know, it's the client's matter. It's their life. It's their decision. And so our role has become much more about making sure a client understands what the options are, what the risks associated with each, with each option is, are, um, and then ultimately understanding that the decision that they make, they are the ones who are going to have to live with it. And if we don't, if we don't agree with it, that, that doesn't matter. It is ultimately for the client to make the decision that is best for them with the advice we've given. Do you know, as, as, a, as a client of both legal and medical services, I hate that. <laughs> I think it's – I totally understand why you do it and I think it's brilliant and I think, yes, we should be heading in that direction. But give me someone who's just going to say, Lindy, this is what you need to do. Sign here. Go and take that. Go and do this. Have this action. Make this. To have that. So, how do you walk that line as well? Oh, look, it's something that when I get home, that's exactly what I want someone else to make all my decisions for me. Yes. Because on a day to day basis, you are giving so much advice. You're you can't tell a client what to do, but you're giving them those options. So it's great when the shoes on the other foot. When the shoes on their foot. Yeah, yeah. When you go home and say, look, you're. What, what's what, for dinner? What's for dinner? I don't. I don't care as long just as it's put hand in front it, of me. Hand it to me. Well, you know what? Interestingly, that is what's meant to happen. So the whole thing that changed this in medicine—I've forgotten the name of the case—but it was a case about a person who went along to a doctor to get some eye surgery, and the patient desperately wanted to know was there any. Ch-? It was a minor eye operation. He said wanted to know was there any chance of me going blind, and the surgeon made a paternalistic decision that. It's so rare, I'm not even going to scare you. So I decided not to tell him he went blind. And anyway, the, people think that that judgment that came out of that was that you have to give people every side effect and every bit of information under the sun. That's not what the judges said. The judges said you have to assess which patients want information and which ones don't, and then give the information according to that assessment. Whereas a lot of people misunderstand it and they think it's all about flooding people with information. It's not meant to be. And I think this is where um, it comes back to Belinda's point about, you know, when you go and see a lawyer, have that conversation early. And it also, I think, ties back into our discussion about personality. So, Lindy, if you know that you're a certain type of consumer of legal services and and you just want someone to say what's objectively the best option, um, then I think that if the first thing that you're saying to your lawyer is, this is the sort of person I am, this is how I want you to give my advice, lawyers will adapt to that. Yeah, that's a really good point because we hardly ever do that as well as clients. We're just all 
all sort of a bit ratty when it comes to that environment. And, Linda, and as lawyers, we're humans. We're, we're not. Oh, come we're not, on. I know, I know, ground, you know, it, you've heard it here first on ABC. Uh, but, I mean, I had so many clients that would come to me, they'd be so nervous and they'd say, oh, what can we call you? So I'd just call me Belinda. Really? What yeah. can we call you? Yeah. What, you know? I, okay. I don't know, but bow first, please. Yeah. That's, no, right. No. That's right. That's right. And pay on the way in. Yeah, that would be no, perfect. no. But but we are human. We have um, the same problems that everyone else has that presents to us. Um, so we're here to help. What do you hope to come out of your year as president? I know that each president goes in with this idea. And, of course, having spoken to quite a number of them over the years, it never works out quite that way. Uh, but if it could work out that way, what would you like to see changed? Wow, I'm scared to say something now. Um, Look, I'd really like to um, foster that discussion about what a lawyer is. And let's think differently. A lawyer isn't um, these days just someone that you see in court or see at times of trouble. A lawyer can be running a scallop business. A lawyer can be running a restaurant. Um, A lawyer can be involved in technology. There's so many other things that lawyers can do. There's a great text that's just come to, from a friend of mine, by the way, Steve, that says, Stephen, the case was Rogers versus Whitaker. Spot on, Rogers versus Whitaker. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, thank Jen. Thank you very much. Yeah, th- mm. <laughs> thanks, Jen, my friend listening yep. at home, which is perfect. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the of the introduction to you, Belinda, the variety of worlds that you've been that you've been a part of in in terms of the law, and you've just mentioned that yes, you can be a part of all of those things. It doesn't just mean you're working in the big city law firm and you know doing corporate law. What's been your favourite bit so far? Oh, look, I think certainly as president, it's the people that I get to meet, um, the the members who are lawyers who are doing amazing things. Everyone's got a unique story to tell, um, and just the energy that I'm able to to collect from everyone that love doing what they're doing. And what about the things that you've done over the years, such as the scallop harvesting, such as the tertiary educa- education stuff, working in a big city, working in Gippsland? What what of those have stood out? Oh, look, everything at um, various times in, in your life, um, it's important to, to challenge yourself. And I've found along the way when things get not easy, but, you know, bearable, that's the time that you need to really step out of your comfort oh, zone and that. take another opportunity. Really? Yeah. Step, just, I was listening to someone today talking about it, that you just need to get to a point where if you're walking out into the ocean or into the bay where your feet are just off the bottom, that's the time when you know you're in the perfect state of, that, of engagement but also of safety. And that quote is from David Bowie. There it was. It, I was watching yeah, that. that was, wasn't that yeah, amazing? Was I amazing. actually, um, See, I actually via, re- rewound um, – <laughs> To, to actually write down that quote because yes. I thought it was fantastic. And it, that's exactly what you are. When you can't actually touch the, the, the bottom of the, the ocean, um, yeah. that's the, the spot that's terrifying yet challenging, it, challenging and exciting. And, yeah. yeah. And, but also you don't, you're not complacent at no. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I knew somebody would know. It's sort of just sitting there at the back of my you head. You know, either a text will come in or the guest will know it. Oh, the guest will know it. Yeah, this is how I run my show, without any kind of personal knowledge whatsoever. Thank you to the person who just sent uh, flat fees, $50, uh, is the best way for lawyers to go ahead. Thank you very much for that. I'll pass it on. I have to, uh, to our guest tonight. 
Lovely to meet you, Belinda. Enjoy your year. Thank you. And next time, bring some scallops. Belinda Wilson is the Law Institute Victoria President for 2017. Uh, With me, of course, is Katie Miller, our Melbourne lawyer. Katie, nice to see you. And Associate Professor Steve Ellen, psychiatrist and director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Andy. 